The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to tonight's scripture passage in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building a city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Only you, Christ, only you, exalted tonight. Only you exalted the South Campus, only you exalted downtown. Only you exalted on Lord's Day morning. Help me to get under this word, not above it. Help me to wear it as a cloak, as my identity. And you come and unfold it, I pray, so that none leaves this room, none leaves any of these rooms in which we are gathered this weekend without meeting the living Christ, even here, thousands of years ago. I ask this in his name, Jesus. Amen. So our theme in this series is Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose in the Glory of Christ. And the spectacular sin we're focusing on today is the building of the Tower of Babel. And unless you think, that simply cannot have any relevance for me. It's too long ago and too strange. Before you check out, ask a few questions. Like, where did all the languages of the world come from? Where did all the people groups come from? Are they the result of sin? Are they a good idea, full of potential for the glory of Christ? and the joy of God's people? Is it a good thing or a bad thing that there are separate, independent political states that are usually in conflict? What does God think of a monolithic superstate? Will he prevent one? Or will the world end with one? And personally, what is your own root sin? 
What does God think of it? And what has he done to help you with it? If any of that sounds remotely relevant, it's all there. And we will try to dig most of it out. First, we've got to clarify something, however. There's a problem you bump into as soon as you start reading this text. At least if you're a careful reader of Genesis, you bump into a problem, verse 1 of chapter 11. And the problem is that it looks like Genesis 11, 1 to 9 seems to describe the origin of languages. However, in chapter 10, already there are languages and people. So look at 10, 5, for example, verse 5 of chapter 10. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. And then you get to chapter 11, verse 1, and it says, Now the whole earth had one language. Hmm. Now, I think, at least if I were writing Genesis, and I mentioned three times in chapter 10... Verse 5, verse 20, verse 31. 31 comes two verses before 11.1. I think if I had said that and you bumped into verse 1, I would be respected and honored if you didn't jump to the conclusion that I forgot what I said two verses earlier. So I'm going to assume Moses writing this didn't forget what he had written and say, oh, well, let's just change everything in chapter 11 and tell it another way. I'm assuming he knows exactly what he wrote in chapter 10, exactly what he wrote in chapter 11, and he's got reasons for doing what he's doing. And it's my job to get inside his head and figure out, why are you talking like this? This doesn't seem to be the right order. And my, my solution to the problem is, in fact, to say it's not in chronological order. And then to figure out, why not? After the flood, six, eight, Nine, six, seven, eight. After the flood, in chapter 9, verse 1, uh, it says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, sometimes when you want to describe something shocking about why an event took place, you put the shocking thing at the front and you say what took place or you say what took place and then you surprise people and putting the shocking thing at the end. Now, coming after chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful, fill the earth, Noah and your kids. Then you read chapter 10 and it looks like that's what's happening. People's going everywhere, language is going everywhere, the earth is being filled, all the corners, people are heading out from the flood. Looks like obedience. It's not. It's not. You get to chapter 11 and he drops this bomb on us. Namely, it wasn't obedience. They weren't spreading, they were clustering. God came down and he shattered their disobedience 
and made their clustering impossible. He confused their language and broke humanity into many peoples. And I think he drops that bomb on us to shock us after making it look as though they were really doing the right thing in chapter 10 by going everywhere with all those languages. And they were going everywhere with all those languages, but not until he had kicked them out of their city. So let's dig in here. Let's just put that problem aside and dig in to what was the sin and how did God respond to it? And then ask, how does all of that serve the global glory of Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. I'm looking for spectacular sins and how they serve the global glory of Jesus Christ. So that's my agenda. That's how I'm coming at these, at these texts. Let's read verses 1 to 4 again. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth in blatant disobedience of Genesis 9-1. Now, the key verse, the key statements are all in verse 4. Number one, they aim to build a city. Number two, they aim to build a tower in the city that reaches up into the heavens. Three, they aim to make a name for themselves. Four, they aim not to be dispersed over the whole earth. The first two of those correspond to the second two. Building a city corresponds to avoiding being dispersed. We're going to build a city, put walls around us, be safe, secure here, and not going to spread. And building a tower that might reach into the heavens, of course, corresponds to that would make a name for us. If we could build such a tower, you could see it from so far away, we would be the center. So the city and the tower are the outward expressions of the sins in here. And what are the sins? Let's make these plain because they're yours. Mine. Sin number one, the love of human praise. There's not a person in this room who doesn't struggle with that. Not one. You want it to come in different forms, depending on your personality, but you don't like to be disapproved of. Nobody glories when they're ripped to shreds, even with illegitimate criticism, let alone legitimate. So we're like this. Love of praise. So we're going to make a name for ourselves. So people will think well of us. Whew. Those folks in Shinar are powerful, smart. Organized. They know how to make the brick that really lasts. And the other sin is the love of security. We build a city. 
Cities represent security. Build a wall, run to the city. You can farm out there, but go in here at night. We all struggle with the love of making our lives secure, making ourselves look good to other people. And when those are the dominating controls in our lives, we're this way. Now, God's will for human beings is not that we find our joy in the praise of men, but that we find our joy in knowing and praising Him. And God's will is not that we find our security in the things we can build, places we can go, locks we can put on our door, alarms we can put on our car. That's not where to find our security. We're to find our security in Him and in glad obedience to Him. So, here's this spectacular sin of man even after the flood, thunderclap of warning, don't sin like the world was sinning, wipe out the world, leave eight behind. And a few years later, we're no better than when we started. That's the point of the Old Testament. That's the point of these stories. Judgment, mercy, judgment, mercy, judgment, mercy. And we never improve. Never do we improve apart from redeeming grace. That's the point of, of the Bible, and especially the Old Testament. We're no better. We're still Adam's children. The human condition is just like it was with Adam and Eve. We're going to decide for ourselves. We're going to spread. That's risky. Spread, you might thin out. Go to Afghanistan, for goodness sakes. We're going to build our own tower, make a name for ourselves. God's not going to make a name for us like he did for Abraham. We're going to make the name. Now, two things in verse 5 signal that man is about to be put in his place. Let's read verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, notice two things. First, this little phrase, children of man, literally or Another translation, sons of Adam. I think that's intentional. These folks doing what Adam did. We haven't gotten any better. We rebelled against God, ate the tree. These folks are rebelling against God, building a city, building a tower, making a name for themselves. So they are considered human. Just human. They're not really bad. Just everybody's bad. Sons of man have done this. Second, I love this, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, I call this holy scorn. You see that? He had to come down to see the tower that was to reach into heaven. This tower fell so far short of heaven God couldn't see it from heaven. Don't get bent out of shape. God sees everything, knows everything. But when you want to deal with something ludicrous, sometimes you use irony. And you say, 
God couldn't even see it from heaven. He had to get on a cloud and come down. Oh, there it is. Look at that. Isn't that funny? I really do believe this is is inspired, holy scorn of human pride. Going to build a tower that reaches into heaven. So we have a signal in verse five. God's going to put them in their place. So now let's see what he does and uh, how he responds to the refusal to glorify God, but seek the praise of man and securing their life in a city, failure to spread. Let's read verses six to eight. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So God dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, just like we read in chapter 10. And they left off building the city. Now notice verse 6. Behold, they are one people and have all one language. So the signal there is God's work is going to multiply not only languages, but peoples. The stress falls on their one people and their one language. And when they cluster together with no hindrances to their God-denying unity, the world is in trouble. And God doesn't want the world to be in that kind of trouble. So, in response to their presumption and their arrogance, he confuses their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 7. He makes it hard for pockets of humanity to unite in God-belittling global plans. God has taken steps to make it difficult for peoples to unite in God-belittling global plans. He has set this up almost from the beginning to restrain the unifying of evil forces in the world. God knows the immense potential of his creatures created in his image. Immense potential. What humans can do is really quite remarkable until God starts to look for it from heaven, has to come down and find, where's the moon you landed on? Where's that high tower in Dubai? Oh, there it is. Speck. But it's impressive to us. And God said it was impressive. 
Amazing liberty has been given to the human race to exalt themselves and design their own security systems without trusting God. But there are limits. There are limits. Thousands of languages, 6,500 roughly, thousands of languages around the world, thousands of different people groups limit the global aspirations of arrogant mankind. Do they not? So now we turn to the question, what's up? What's going on here? What does this have to do with the big purposes where God is going? The coming of his son, the glorifying of Jesus Christ, the global praise of the son of God. Now, reestablish our foundations again. When God permits a thing... He permits it for a reason. I've said it, I think, every sermon in this series. When God permits a thing, he permits it for a reason, which means it's part of a plan. He's not doing anything willy-nilly, haphazard. Everything is by design, both what he causes directly and what he permits indirectly. It's all designed. God's not foolish. He's not constantly playing catch up. The languages of the world are not an afterthought to an unforeseen sin. So if not... We got questions to answer. Why did he permit this kind of rebellion? And why did he respond to it the way he did in view of his everlasting purpose to glorify Christ crucified, whom he had in his mind before the foundation of the world, according to Revelation 13, 8, as we saw last time. The languages of the world are... Judgment upon arrogant, presumptuous, God-belittling unifiers of global rebellion. And they are vastly more. Vastly more. So we ask again, how does this spectacular sin and the consequences of divided peoples, divided languages... Glorify Christ. And I wrote down five ways. Number one, God's division of the world into different languages hinders the rise of global, monolithic, anti-Christian states that would have the power to simply crush all Christians with one dictatorial Edict. You know, we often think of the multiplicity of languages and their accumulating cultures as a hindrance of the spread of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. That's not the way God thinks about it. God is way more concerned with unity than diversity in the world. 
way more concerned. God knows something you may not know about if, in fact, there were no restraints on global anti-God unifying efforts. Those efforts could crush his people in a moment. And God uses means. You can push back against God if you want and say, I wouldn't have done it that way. Just snap your finger and wipe out the enemy. Why are you putting in place these human restraints? Well, he's God, not you and not me. So I bow, I learn, I listen. He's got a drama to play and he's writing it. So, the first way that this punishment on this sin glorifies Christ is that it puts restraints on Christ-destroying anti-God unity in the world. It makes it impossible. So, in one of my questions I ask at the beginning, is it a good thing that there are hundreds of nation states in the world that spend most of their times being nervous about each other? My answer is, you better believe it's a good thing. Number two, is a second way that the story of the Tower of Babel glorifies Christ. Suppose someone asks, now in view of what you just said, isn't there going to be At the end of the age, one of those big monolithic worldwide states? Isn't that in Revelation somewhere? Isn't that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? And the answer is yes. In the last day, God will loosen the restraints. Something is holding back the man of sin. God will loosen the restraints of Antichrist. Paul calls him man of lawlessness. John calls him the beast. Loosen the restraints. There will rise a great global attraction. There will be horrific persecution. Of believers. So much so that had he not shortened those days, even the elect, gone, he says. But there's a link between that coming event and the Tower of Babel that makes me see that not as a contradiction to God's design. I already expressed. The word Babel, 236 times or so in the New Testament, Old Testament, translated virtually every time except a handful. Babylon, not Babel. This is Babylon. This is scorn on Babylon, not some little dinky city. This is comment about the origin of the great whore, the great harlot who gets drunk 
in the last day on the blood of saints. That's what's going on here. Now, what becomes of her? The book of Revelation describes this Babylon, which represents the great city, mercantile, professional powers of the world, exalting themselves against God and against his anointed, raging. What becomes of her? Let me read you. Just a few verses, and you listen to the words from Revelation for echoes of Genesis 11. Her sins are heaped high as the heaven, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow. Mourning I shall never see. Alas, alas, you great city. You mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. Yes. In the last day, God will loosen the reins. There will be a man of sin, a man of lawlessness, an antichrist, a beast. And there will be an uncanny attraction to him across cultures and languages. Christians will endure horrific persecution. And then, on the clouds of heaven, the Lord God Almighty Jesus Christ will slay him with the breath of his mouth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And Babylon will be no more. All the towers will have come down, and in that day, the Lord alone will be exalted. That's where this text is pointing. Number three. The sin of Babel, Babylon, God's judgment on it leads to the global glory of Christ this way, it puts in place a situation of languages, peoples, such that when Christ undertakes to lay claim on the world, he lays claim on every language and every people. And in being able to lay claim with authority and effectiveness through missions on every language, his glory shines the more brightly than if we all spoke the same language and he just took us that way. For God to break in on every language and every culture requires a greater God than to break in on a single language and a single culture. And so listen to these words. You know them well. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, says Jesus Christ. Therefore, go make disciples of every nation. The glory of Christ over all the earth is more greatly magnified because there are so many different languages for us to master and through which he masters the peoples. That's number three. 
Number four, the same should be said, just to make it explicit, about the gospel. The gospel is going to do the same thing. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also to the Greek and the Greek simply stood for that whole mass out there, non-Jewish. The glory of the gospel. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was raised on the third day. He was buried and then raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The sacrifice that he made and the triumph that he achieved for us in his life and death is the gospel, and that gospel is not a tribal religion. And that is more plain because of how it amazingly finds its way incarnationally into thousands of languages instead of just having one language to be spoken in and one culture to deal with. That the gospel triumphs over and over in the most Different from us cultures. I just love it. I, as, as devotions, we read every night the Global Prayer Digest. Did this with my boys growing up. Resolved I'd do it with my little girl growing up. Which means we're reading about a different unreached people group every day. They have the most strange names. And we're all in Nepal and Tibet and northern India right now. And almost always they say, there's about a hundred Christians in these three million people. Or something like that. And I say, yes! Yes! A hundred people so strange from me. Right? Language, I can't even imagine how they write it, how they say it, things they do, things they eat off the planet as far as I'm concerned. And Christ takes them. And if there's any that don't have one or two, let's go. Let's go. That's what we're about. That's number four. The gospel is glorified by penetrating all these languages that God brought upon the world because of the sin on Shinar. Finally, when Jesus receives from all the languages praise, that praise will be more beautiful because of all the different languages than if he were receiving praise only from one. And you know where I'm going to read in closing, don't you? And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed men for God from every tribe and language and people, and have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked. I'm jumping over two chapters now. And I looked, and I saw a multitude which no man could number. Every nation and every language and every tribe 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Those acclamations are not in the book of Revelation to belittle the languages. Oh, no. They are in the the book of Revelation to celebrate the triumphs of God in and through the sins of Babylon and all the punishments that came upon them which redounds to the glory of Jesus Christ because the chorus of this diversity from all the peoples and all the languages will be perfect forever. And had there not been those languages, he would not have received the praise that he is due. So Bethlehem, praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath in this church praise the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we love Christ. We are so thankful that you have undertaken in your sovereignty from the beginning to see to it that he gets what he deserves. And Father, I pray for those in these rooms right now, South Campus, downtown, and here. I pray for them who do not praise the Lord Jesus. They go home. They just want to watch television tonight. The highest thing is pizza, NFL. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes before it's too late. And that Christ would become supreme so that they eat pizza to the glory of Jesus and watch football to the glory of Jesus. Don't let anybody go out an idolater. Salvation belongs to our God and unto the Lamb. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.